Hello and welcome to Future Pod. I'm Rebecca Meyett. The Futures and Foresight community comprises a remarkable and diverse group of individuals who span academic, commercial and social interests. At FuturePod, we seek to honour and to learn from the wisdom of those who have established and developed our field, to connect and support the practice of those who work in this space, and most importantly, to give pathways and inspiration to those who wish to join us in creating humane and better futures for ourselves and those who come after us. Today, our guest is Dr. Cindy Fruin. Cindy is an architect, urban futurist, adjunct professor for the graduate program in strategic foresight at the University of Houston and a writer. Cindy has been a business owner for three decades, focused on sustainability, community development and public work. She's a former chairperson of the Board of Association of Professional Futurists with members in 33 countries and sits on a number of architect and design boards in Kansas. She consults, speaks, and writes on the future of cities and design futures. Cindy lives in the Kansas City area in the United States of America and joins us today online. Welcome to FuturePod, Cindy. Yes, hello, Rebecca. Good to see you. Good to, good to talk with you. So to start off with Cindy, um, can you please tell the listeners how you, you started to find out about the, the foresight and, and futures field? What, what brought you into the field? So after about 25 years of practicing architecture, I became um, interested in expanding my knowledge. I thought we were doing a lot of uh, public work, large projects, important, substantial projects uh, around America, and that we were making some decisions without a firm basis as to why we were choosing one thing over another. We were really struggling with getting people to agree to do sustainable design, to do good urban design. It was, um, seemed to me, a lack of foundation or groundedness in the work we were doing. It seemed arbitrary many times uh, based on who was involved. So I began, inter became interested in selling my firm that I'd had for about 20 years at that point and merged it with another really good um, sustain sustainable design firm. And that whole process takes a while. But in that pro during that time period, I was doing some work in, the in Houston for the University of Texas on um, stormwater uh, master planning. Um, and ran into, uh, I saw a speaker talking about foresight and future studies and the University of Houston's program. So while I was in Houston, I uh, got in touch with Peter Bishop because I saw this idea of here I had been involved in architecture and everything you build is long term. Everything is 25 is a short term. 100 years would be a normal uh, time period that you'd hope something would last that you're building. And yet, what did we know about 100 years out? Not very much at all in the architecture field. We were basing everything on the past. So I got in touch with Peter Bishop down at the University of Houston. And I say down because it's south of, uh, of Kansas City. And so <laughs> we think of that being down. And, uh, and, and met with him and, and went through the summer program. Uh, the summer program for the University of Houston Clear Lake was like summer camp for futurists. And it was a fabulous program that I uh, went to for two summers. I think it was 2002 and 2003. Um, 
to to gain the master's pro to get, gain the master's degree in uh, foresight. So you've been practicing for, for quite a few years now. Um, are there any particular tools that um, you found um, that you're kind of drawn to that you regularly call on um, that you'll be able to, to share with, with the listeners? I think the tools that I've been drawn to are because they're really large scale that I can deal with people um, in public settings and can cover a, a lot of ground, can can see really large, big picture things. Um, and also has to do with some of the people that I've gotten to know. Um, so one of them that I enjoy very much is the Three Horizons um, scenarios or Three Horizons people. I mean, you can apply it to both people and to uh, things or ideas, images of the future. And so I'm a, I'm a big fan of that um, that tool because people identify with whether or not they're a first, second, or third horizon kind of thinker. And for me, I have to get some way to make leaders think about who they are and what their role is in the future. Some of them are very uh, first horizon, very practical, and some of them are very blue sky, but most of them are in the strategy phase. Most of them are in the merging of those two horizons. So I, I, um, that's one of the tools that I really like. Would you like some more? Yeah, yes, please. <laughs> so I, I like to think of it in sort of a three-dimensional way. And so that is one of the tools that can make you think longer term, further out, along with futures wheels, which is another good tool for going. If you do this, then you go there, and then you do this, and you go there, and, you, and then you can look at intersections. So those are take, it for, take uh, people further out um, where they can go out next, 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 and then you can start making them think much longer term than they had been. Uh, another, of course, we all use the environmental scanning, the steep domains that um, make people think uh, more broadly, and then and then causal layered analysis by um, uh, Sahel and Ayatollah that goes down and deeper into the cultural and stories, the narratives and images of the future. And since I do um, work on cities, the first things I always uh, am trying to get out of uh, a situation, a project I'm working on or a city I'm working on is what are the stories? What are the narratives? What are the local myths and sense about who they are and the cultural aspects? And so CLA is a very good tool for that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in terms of how you um, started to use these, so, so having done the, the program at the University of Houston, um, the Masters, um, and then starting to move into the space. Can you um, explain a little bit about what, what challenges you had to kind of moving from that kind of the education space through to the, the practical and putting them in practice and, and consulting? I think I probably have a great advantage over many futurists because I already had uh, 25 years of very practical experience in designing cities and designing large-scale projects and working with a lot of people and trying to get a lot of people moving ahead together. Mm -hmm. Foresight gave me these fabulous tools to make them think more deeply and more long-term. You know, it's, it's about thinking 
about, it's all about long-termism for me. It's about thinking very long-term, which is many times a hundred years. I try to get people thinking 50 or a hundred years out because planning generally is already at 20 or 30 years out mm -hmm. and planning is sort of an extended present. Uh, that's probably one of those obstacles, one of those burdens that um, cities are saddled with is that they always think the future is, uh, you know, just bigger, faster, more of the um, present and that they just kind of, they extrapolate that out and they say that's what we're going to be. But that's probably one of the least likely, uh, probably one of the least likely options of what's going to happen. There's always disruptions. There's always surprises. There's always new things that they didn't think of. And um, that's where it becomes more interesting. And so uh, the, the tools that can help me do that kind of work make it more valid, more real, more credible, more viable, more exciting, more transformative, and, and uh, get people to move off of what they think is, what is normal, what is a business as usual scenario is, is, um, are the tools I like to do. That's a, the, one of the hardest things. I already am very, very well versed in the issues of getting a lot of people to do something together mm. because that comes with any uh, architectural projects mm. but getting them to do to understand that um, what they're doing isn't final that it's not the only thing they could do and that there is even in building cities or maybe especially in building cities there's a process there's an engagement that is, is equally important um, for them nurturing a city and making a city better and better and better. It's the, it's not just the buildings. It's really the people and the networks that you build with that. Mm. And so I've, um, another tool that I've learned to really like is appreciative inquiry and Tricia Lustig and a couple of other people have brought that into foresight. Um, and I learned about it in part at an APF meeting in London, uh, and have been using it ever since. And it's a very good way to get people, not only uh, engaged, but leading uh, and getting other people engaged by um, getting them to tell their stories and getting them to uh, adopt a shared vision and develop and adopt it. And so this appreciative inquiry is another new tool, another tool I've learned to appreciate, I learned to like. Is there a particular example that you might be able to talk through? I'd really love to understand sort of what groups um, you've been working with. Is it really a cross-section of um, the community, depending on the different project that you're working on, or is it more senior people as part of um, um, a community group? Or could you, you speak more about um, who you would use these tools with? You know, so generally it's a stakeholder groups that are um, representative of different uh, both community and uh, business corporate leaders and agencies. Um, and so we try to find, I try to find people that are across uh, a lot of diverse groups, a lot of diverse interests. I mean, we've even included children at times. Um, I've even, I mean, it is, it is for sort of a delightful side of things, but um, I've done so many public, public uh, participation um, projects that uh and none of them are just perfect all of them are sort of a mix of uh, a mix of hit and hit and miss and the only way that i ever think they've achieved anything of value is if you can go back later and see that they are sticking with it and so for instance one that i did was a strategic development plans here that um had that lasted over uh 
10-year period. And so that's pretty short for what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. But in the end, they did actually complete the strategic development uh, thinking that we were going through. Um, but they, they continued to think they needed more and needed to do more. And I, I'm, I'm trying to get them to say, then let's think even longer term. I think there's something, even when you're doing massive uh, public work projects that you at the end, always think, imagine that there was something else you could have done. And, um, and I think they're in that mood here now. And, and I guess it's, that's a good thing. Uh, Tricia and her uh, colleagues came across a project they did in Aruba that they related that was actually was a very long-term plan. And because um, they did it so long ago, they did it in, I don't know, 2000 five or eight or something like that using the appreciative inquiry and they were able to get uh to a um a net zero energy um use uh completely independent of any other kind of energy use which they predicted by 2025 and they've already done it so they met their goals early and i think that's kind of the what happened in kansas city as well is that you make these goals and they get so excited if you get a lot of participation, that people actually get things done too early. And so early that they say, well, what else could we have done? <laughs> yeah. And so there's a certain hunger there that's good that you have to almost be ready to capitalize on or else um, think, well, that was too easy. <laughs> yeah. Well, then nobody else is getting it done. So don't imagine that it was all that easy. Yeah. So you see that variety of, of whether or not you can win when you can get more people engaged and more people believing, it's it's really not about just building things, it's about how they um, engage and participate in it mm -hmm. and how much they believe in that. Because most of the things that I do are almost half, you know, how people use things and how people um, participate in it as it is built the actual bricks and mortar part of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably increasing because uh, with all of the digital overlays that happen with physical um, construction, the things that we use with social media that are related to, um, whether it's the sustainable, the smart, the intelligence side of the data-driven or the sustainable design elements or the social um, cultural elements, all of these are user-driven. And so the user becomes even more important than um, are equally important than the uh, design and construction does. It's all really blending how people are using what we build. And so what you've been involved in and just looking at um, almost a little bit of a list of what you've done. So in terms of the courthouses, schools, city halls, um, police facilities, fire stations, zoos, parks. So really looking at the spaces from the user ex um, experience or user perspective for all of those. Yeah. Yeah, the user experience and the user uh, involvement and how much they're changing things as they, they just don't end up using things the way that you think they were going to use them. And um, it's, it's, it's rather amazing. Um, I mean, just a couple of years before Facebook was around, none of, nobody really even anticipated it. And uh, so I don't know what, what that says to us as futurists because technology is one of the things that we're better at um, forecasting, for lack of a better word, at imagining. Uh, technology is one of the things that we're better at seeing. 
the things that we're not so good at seeing is the social side of things. And so see, we could see that there was going to be cell phones because they're already in existence by then. We were using cell phones in 2002-3. But by 2004, this dating app out of Harvard is beginning and nobody's still paying attention to it. And within three years, it's completely changing the world. And within four years, it's changing elections. And that's a pretty substantial leap to make. Um, but I don't know if anybody was even making that leap yet. I mean, I know I was in the space. I was involved in Facebook and Twitter at that point, but I, uh, I think it was still pretty remarkable um, how, what an impact all of it's had on our lives. Mm -hmm. Airbnb, for anything from Airbnb and Ubers to um, what you even, how, you know, how you map and, and uh, navigate a city. It's, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a whole different, it's a, the virtual worlds are having a major impact on what we're doing with cities because um, they're infinite, they're endless, they can be infinitely creative. Uh, whereas what we build is always uh, limited and always based on limited resources and financial um, finances. Those are, those are very limited pieces. That's what makes them more expensive. Whereas, Whereas the real power, the real innovation ends up being in the virtual side, which mm -hmm. is infinite. Mm -hmm. Difficult to monetize, but infinite. Although obviously some people have figured out how to monetize it. So you might move now to getting you to speak about some of the, the challenges that you you had obviously had a, had a career and specialization before holding in some of the futures tools. When you started to use those tools, could you talk about any specific challenges? Was there anything that you did differently now you had this new toolkit and any new challenges that came up because of that? Well, there's always a problem with uh, let's call them the really liminal or in, interim uh, quick presentations. And for me anyway, is the workshop or quick presentation. Um, I think foresight is a more in-depth endeavor that it's really difficult to do in a quick jump in, jump out. You Occasionally it works. I'd say I thought about a batting 500, I'm about at 50-50 of when I show up and leave quickly, whether it's just a keynote or a um, workshop, that I think those are about half the time they work and half the time they don't. Mm -hmm. And the reason I think I say that is um, I, because I judge whether or not they're working very well as to whether or not they implement anything. They actually change what they're doing. Does it make an impact on what they're up to or do they just deny it and say, oh, we'll learn more about that later Then you know, I didn't do a very good job. Mm -hmm. I, I find that to be very challenging uh, because a lot of people think, oh, ha let's have a futurist come in and tell us what the future is. And that's not what we do. Mm -hmm. That's just really not what we do. We, um, it's a much more um, mind-changing experience for people that you have to change how they're framing what they're going to do today based on what they, 
uh, influenced by what they um, imagine are the potential futures that they're going to deal with, whether that means they're going to try to, you know, contingency plan against really bad things, try to plan against the disasters, try to plan against the things that, try to mitigate the things that might happen that they don't want, or whether they're going to aim at things that they do want, and how they're going to deal with uh, the complexity of that. So I think the long-termism with emergent futures, the dynamic of and uncertainties of the future, I think that's the real, that's a real challenge, especially if you're only going to meet with them on a one-time deal. You know, if you're going to do it on a short-term, come in and try to change their minds in one meeting, I think that's incredibly difficult. And it works when they are already somehow framed. Well, I think when they're already very ready, maybe their urgency is higher. Maybe their maybe their um, type of people that they are, the type of work that they're doing, like marketing people, and amazingly, a few government agencies that I've dealt with seem really ready to uh, listen and to respond and are very curious and then find ways to call back later. And I can see that they're working on it. And other people, they just say, oh, boy, that was a bunch of junk. We already knew all that. And um, let's move on and keep doing what we've been doing. In which case, I think, well, I just kind of failed there. I, it just didn't work. and. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm thinking more about writing and um, doing some substantial work that I can leave with them that they, somebody might actually be able to grab onto and be, work more in depth, um, not see it as just a one time, you know, it's like if you showered once a year or something, <laughs> it just isn't going to work. You, you really have to shower more often than that. And uh, how to get them to think in terms of frequent showers, frequent um, every day thinking about the future, every day Im implementing uh, ideas about knowing that everything that they're doing has a long-term implication. Mm. To me, that's just a really important point. Mm. That everything that they're doing, especially in the space I work in, could be around for decades, if not hundreds of years. And and uh, that that's a real legacy. And what kind of legacy are they leaving? What is it that they have um, left for future generations? And somebody has to either, you know, love it or remove it or fix it. And those are their three options. There, it's gonna be something really valuable. I just saw the Taj Mahal and I'd say, you know, it should be here for another thousand years. It's not that old a building compared to some other really amazing places, but it needs some real care. Um, but people love it, obviously. It is a place that's full of energy and vibrations mm -hmm. that make you say, take care of this place. There's beloved buildings. There's buildings that, you know, don't deserve. There's a lot of places that really never will be worth keeping they can't adapt they aren't uh, long-term they don't have the long-term value and there's other places that then you change and make them better and make them adapt and make them usable and and uh, if people start thinking that way if they start categorizing their moves so that they know if it has a long-term value or if they can make some changes to it to make it more valuable long-term uh, or if they just have to cut their losses and 
and start <laughs> start over. Uh, then 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 they're starting to think about long, they're starting to think about their legacy. Uh, right now, I'm working on some things for the Urban Land Institute, which is uh, a group out of uh, I think Washington D.C. that is a national. I am probably international uh, group of developers, real estate. They do real estate development here. And so they're the, probably the largest group of uh, real estate development uh, in the commercial side on the, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the large scale side. There's probably many, many more when it comes to residential because it's smaller um, and so many more people but on the commercial side, uh, Urban Land Institute. So I'm working on that and it happens to be about hospitality and hotels. And so I, um, I'm having fun thinking about the future of that um, and, and thinking what I can bring to them. To them. Um, and I just now have started some uh, outlining a book that I've been meaning to do for quite some time. Uh, so the, in fact, that was really one of my reasons for getting into the work that the the urban futures that I'm doing um, wasn't just to affect certain projects, but to help people see a longer term. And I mean, my work has been very, uh, very much of a polymath. You know, architects maybe are already in that field, in that realm. But as, when I add the long termism, and plus I also am a rhetorician in communication studies as my PhD. And you put the three together, and so this is my space, time, and language approach to things. Um, and those are, those are three rather unique um, things to put together into one, one person's brain. So I'm hoping to have that move into some helpful books, some use, useful books that will help people see long-term and how to build better cities, how, to live, how they might live in the future. Um, and I, so I've just started outlining that sort of work. Mm -hmm. It's finally time. I've been out of, out of school uh, for 15 years, uh, the second time. And it's, it's about time that I start putting it down to some sort of a, of a written form, a documentation, besides the buildings that I've already built. But, and besides reports and those sort of things, it seems to me like... Um, that's one way to communicate to more people what they might be able to do and what they need to be doing. Mm -hmm. I look forward to, to looking out for that when it comes out. What, what are you saying for the, for the future it, um, in, in 30 years? 30 years, so 30 years, um, so 2050. You know, uh, in my work, almost all of Europe and most of the um, developed countries are, their growth is slowing tremendously. And um, as soon as you move into cities, as soon as people move out of farms, they no longer really want really large families and that's what's happening in China now and soon to be happening in India. And so watching cities go from something that, you know, which are not that old to start with, to be honest with you. I mean, we maybe have been building cities for 10,000 years, but um, modern plumbing is only 150 years old or something. So 
uh, and things like air conditioning that made uh, the southern United States inhabitable. A lot of warmer climates were not able to really um, grow at much of a pace until they got air conditioning. And that's really only about 70 years old. So these are rather, rather uh, new innovations even still. You know, this is a relatively short time frame that we've been doing what we're doing. And that's true about the spike in population too, is that it's a very recent phenomenon to have this exponential growth in population. But it seems that this is the decade, this, I mean, this is the century that that is balancing and leveling off. And uh, it seems that that's slowing because people have moved into cities. They don't need to have, you know, eight children to farm the, the crops and, and they know that the healthcare will probably let their kids live past uh, five years old and the women are getting educated and want to have um, work outside the home and and that creates low fertility rates so we see this kind of leveling off that is really going to become very evident by 2050 along with the industrialized uh, cities that i'm hoping are um, coming to a uh, uh, sort of a last phase of, of building cities like this is that we um, well we see we see all of the new technologies that are coming in that may change the idea of peak um, may change the idea of, of peak rush hours and everybody going to work at the same time and coming home at the same time and this this has been the basis of uh, modern cities so I'm hoping that these things are um, you know, are in our soon, soon past. So it's slowing, slowing the growth and different ways of dealing with mobility and transportation, um, different ways of how we actually live and the different ways that we, um, we, we do our work and have purpose in our lives. I think all of these things in these next 30 years are changing fairly dramatically. Mm -hmm. I didn't even bring up anything about environmental, but that would be the third leg of this. Yeah, okay. Is it sort of what um, sometimes I call my my pet is population, environment, and technology is the three th things that I really focus on in, in my work as being at a sort of peak moments, all three of them. Mm. That's a, a term that you use when explaining um, or helping people to think more longer term? Yes, right. The next question we, we like to ask is how you describe foresight or futures thinking to someone who hasn't ever heard of it before? How would you explain it to them? So for me, the simplest way is the timeline, is that if there's a historian for the past and there's a, a journalist for the present, there's a futurist for the future or a foresight professional for the future, is that the timeline is a simple way I think it's not quite adequate um, because um, I think one of the most important things about foresight is thinking that there are multiple futures ahead and there's multiple pasts in many ways too is that people see different things about the past and there's multiple presence uh, but that there isn't 
just one thing that might happen. And so the idea of emergent futures and thinking about uncertainty, that's a harder, a more difficult thing to try to explain is that you don't just want to say, here's our prediction, because that's not what futures do, right? Mm. And so sometimes I do say to someone, uh, well, the one thing futures don't do is make predictions. And uh, they say, what? That's what futures are supposed to be doing. <laughs> that's your job, right? But actually, um, we frame things so people are more comfortable with the uncertainty and able to deal with emergent futures as they happen. Mm. And to me, that is a really powerful shift in. Uh, in your mindset is that you you become more comfortable with knowing that um, that you have choices and that the choices matter and that um, you can deal with the difficulties as they come because you have these tools and that you've already thought about them you've been already thinking about them and that you're ready for the things that come about apart uh, that come about as surprises uh, because you've already thought about all these other things so it I think it helps people become calmer about the future because I think a lot of people are just nervous. Mm. Many people are just nervous about climate change or they're nervous about uh, population growth or they're nervous about, um, you know, in cities that become 140 million people and the, the change, accelerating change as it's been called and future shock. Uh, I, a lot of, I think a lot of the, politics that we see are backlash against not liking change. You know, they just aren't, have never been made comfortable with change. So I think it's one of our jobs to try to help people say, not only is it not, we don't predict, but what we do is become comfortable with, with change. Mm -hmm. And that that is one of our jobs is to help people become comfortable with how things might change. And that that's, it's a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, people do, do generally have had better futures. It's a progress thing to say, but very, very industrial, modern thing to say that it's always been better. It hasn't always been better. Some things haven't been better. You know, the elephants don't think it's better. <laughs> it's not been better for elephants. I had the good luck of seeing elephants in Botswana and riding horses alongside of them and, and to hear that they might be extinct in the wild by 2025, it's just shocking. So some of our things that we've done have not been progressive. Some of them have been very detrimental. Mm -hmm. And um, so you can't always say that things have gotten better. And that's true about a lot of environmental, you know, pollution and things mm -hmm. like that. But um, other things have gotten better. And um, we do keep trying to improve education and knowledge and technology and and uh, health and and many of these things are getting better um we just aren't nearly a perfect uh species as human beings that have dominated what's happened on this planet we aren't nearly at a, at a level that we can balance that or that we can harness the things that are renewable like solar and and uh, how we deal with food, and how do we do, do a balanced world. We haven't figured that out yet, but we're getting better at it, I think. And those are the things that you can be optimistic about, or you can be at least involved in to try to make it more optimistic. That's not exactly elevator speech, is it, Rebecca? <laughs> the future is a very exciting place, right? Unless you're involved in foresight, I, I don't even know if they're that 
aware of this idea of complexity that things are are dynamic and that you don't do you can't just see a single trend line you see things interacting with each other and that makes these emergent futures that we just um there's just so many variables and yet uh, people continue to believe that there's a, a you know a straight arrow between a and b and the b is the future right it's just nonsense Cindy, you've been heavily involved in the Association of Professional Futurists. Um, could you speak a bit around that? And um, I know you're a former chairperson of the association as well. So the, uh, the Association of the APF, the Association of Professional Futurists, has been growing and it has reached more and more countries. I think last I saw was over 40 countries now. And, um, and you know, out of 200, that's not a total saturation, not even close, uh, but it is more and more of a conversation that has a global reach to it. And I think the only way that you can think about the future and think about um, the importance of a large scale perspective is if you have contacts and communications with people all over the world so that you have that perspective. I think it's one of the things that futurists bring to the table is. Um, that large, massive perspective, both long-term and law and geographically. Um, so, so the a APF has been uh, doing more and more in terms of of uh, both community gatherings and conversations online. Um, so, the APF has had hosted the Futures Festival that brings more and more emerging futurists in that we haven't even heard of before that are, have all kinds of new ways of storytelling or of engaging people in their work and in the kinds of things that they think about. So the APF has had the benefit of um, seeing people stretch out into new areas and of sharing that among ourselves. And that's a real bonus to members and um, over the long term, I think, to the public as well. Thank you, Cindy. I'm not sure we could talk more and more and more, but we'll, we'll leave it there for today. Um, just wanted to thank you so much for taking the time and, and in being interviewed and, and sharing your lessons and, and wisdom with the community. Well, thank you very much, Rebecca. It's been really fun. And uh, thanks for inviting me. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Rebecca Mayett saying goodbye for now.